you are listening to Hypertension Resistant to Treatment, where you will get knowledge, training, resources, and support for better blood pressure control. If you are suffering with high blood pressure or blood pressure that is difficult to treat, this podcast is indeed for you. Here is your host, Dr. Tanya. I am Dr. Tanya, and I am here to teach you everything you ought to know about hypertension management. I am a clinical scientist, and I've done research over 10 years, and I've found some interesting things about hypertension and blood pressure control and medication-taking behavior. I would like to share with you all of the information I've found, as well as all the information that's out there that, that will help you get control of your blood pressure. Stick with me and we'll take this journey to help you improve your blood pressure. Thanks for listening. Hello, hypertension resistor. Today, I want to look at the possibility of ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19 and prophylaxis for COVID-19. I also want to look at the likelihood of someone taking the medication as prescribed. And lastly, we'll look at Dr. Pierre Corey's suggestion of the best recommendations for getting us out of this pandemic. So let's get to it. I mean, if you come down with COVID-19, despite the fact that you are vaccinated, despite the fact that you're using your, you know, you're wearing your mask, Despite the fact that you're social distancing and all of that, let's say you're not doing all of that and you come down with COVID-19. The best course of action, according to research, according to the Frontline Alliance protocol, is best to get treated early. That's what's best. And ask your doctor about ivermectin. Can you get that prescription for ivermectin? Because we know it works for some people. We know that there are a lot of anecdotal, okay, quote unquote, cases that has shown that people who took ivermectin, which is a FDA approved drug to treat scabies and other parasitic diseases. Now, there are studies and even randomized controlled trials that have been done. And they say that these trials are pretty small and that uh, these observational studies and the systematic reviews that have been put together, all of this is pretty much anecdotal. Whatever you might want to call it, whatever it is, it still has been shown to help some people. So I want to just put that out there so that you can know that there is something else that you can do just in case you find yourself in that predicament. Of course, research has shown that your chances of getting very sick that you would have to go to the hospital is very slim. And your chances of going to the hospital and being put in ICU on a ventilator is even slimmer if you're vaccinated with any of the COVID vaccine. But you must have two doses of the vaccination for about two months before you're fully protected. So at least 21 days after your second dose, then you are considered to have full protection. But Again, there are breakthrough cases that are occurring, but if you do the public health measures, you are even 
decreasing your chances of those breakthrough cases even further. Now, who knows what other variant we may have. They say the Lambda variant is coming and others are coming if we don't get the majority of the population. Well, not just the majority, if we don't get enough people vaccinated. So again, you're not just making the choice for yourself. You're making your the choice for your community, your family, and everybody else. If you decide not to get the vaccine, and if you decide to get the vaccine, if you decide to get the vaccine, then you are doing what's best for the yourself, your family, and the whole community and the world. If you decide not to get the vaccine, then you are not really helping yourself, your family, and the world. Now, we do understand that some people are not allowed to get the vaccine based on their medical health history and their doctor's recommendation. But if that's not you, please consider getting the vaccine to protect yourself. Okay, well, I'm off that rant. So let's now turn our attention to Dr. Andrew Hill with the Department of Pharmacology from the University of Liverpool in the UK. I've been working on this disease since it started in March, and I've been looking at repurposed drugs to treat COVID-19. I just want to make it clear that the opinions in this presentation are my personal views as an academic research scientist. By way of background, in addition, I've, I've 30 years experience working on uh, clinical trials of antivirals, mainly on HIV, hepatitis C, over 200 published papers, Science, New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet. But these opinions that I'm going to present today may not be exactly the same as UNITAID and the World Health Organization. The work I've been doing for them is to give them a proposal to show them what's going on in the studies, to show them the results, and it's then their decision to take whether they would like to approve or take this forward. So um, the review from this, uh, the, the results from this review have been submitted to those organizations for their analysis, but their analysis is still ongoing. So you shouldn't see any of this presentation is necessarily a signal or endorsement from WHO or UNITAID that this should happen. The results have not been peer-reviewed, so should be seen as preliminary. So just to introduce this whole area, repurposing drugs for COVID-19, uh, it's, it's a strategy that's been pursued because you can take a drug with the known safety profile, with drug supplies that are already available in pharmacies or can be imported and made quickly, and the treatment can be adopted very quickly if the randomized trials show promise. So, for example, we had the recovery trial of dexamethasone showing a survival benefit. And almost the next day, doctors started to use dexamethasone in their clinics to treat oxygenated patients with COVID-19. The disadvantages, and I've, I've experienced this at first hand, is you can think a drug is working for COVID-19 and that it can fail. You can get results that are promising in early trials, then fail later on. And I've worked on a number of studies uh, of, of drugs, particularly sofosfavir, the clatosfavir, the hepatitis C combination that looked promising early on and then didn't work. So one lesson I've learned is large randomized trials are needed to make clear assessments. So progress so far on repurposed drugs, we can see the benefits of dexamethasone giving approximately a 20% improvement in in survival in the recovery trial for oxygenated patients. And then for intensive care patients, we have either tocilizumab or sarilumab, as shown very recently in the REMCAP-RAP studies in the United Kingdom. 
But we need to remember all of these, the drugs that have been approved so far are really for quite moderate to severe patients. There's nothing there for either uh, mild patients, uh, people not requiring oxygen, or indeed for prevention. There are other repurposed drugs that have been worked on that have not ended up showing survival benefits. So remdesivir, despite early promise, didn't. Lipinavir, ritonavir, used very early on in the epidemic in China, didn't show benefits. Interferon beta and infamous, infamously hydroxychloroquine. Other drugs I've worked on, favipiravir, nitazoxanide, lasartan, imatinib, sofosfavir, very much at an experimental stage and very mixed results from those other repurposed drugs. One thing I've learned with repurposed drugs is not to believe results from non-randomized studies. And everything I present in this talk is going to be from randomized clinical trials. This really is the gold standard of evidence that we need to assess any medicine for COVID-19. So just by, by way of background, what is ivermectin? There were many repurposed drugs being screened in the early phases of uh, the epidemic in early 2020. Ivermectin was identified by a research laboratory in Melbourne, in Australia, as showing antiviral activity in vitro. But the IC50, the concentration of the drug needed to inhibit viral replication, was considered too high for in vivo activity to be likely. People would be predict were predicted to, to need huge uh, drug levels or huge doses of ivermectin to achieve those IC50 concentrations. Now, as a result, this drug was not actively pursued in North America and Europe, and uh, indeed Merck, the parent pharmaceutical company, have not evaluated ivermectin. However, given the, these uh, IC50 results, some people believe that there was the potential for antiviral activity, and also it's an anti-inflammatory and it might work through a different mechanism of action. So clinical trials have been started mainly in low and middle income countries where drug supplies were readily available. But when we think about this trial program, it's very different from the ones for the other repurposed drugs. We don't have the support of the large pharmaceutical companies. We don't have the support of the large donor organizations. There isn't a European or North American sponsor that can run the large trials. So you're really talking about a group of studies run with the resources available in the in the countries where it was set up and one of the real uh, attractive benefits of, of uh, ivermectin is it does work a course of treatment of 0.4 milligrams per kilogram for five days or it already is available on sale in india and bangladesh for three us dollars a kilogram of ivermectin costs 348 dollars uh, to make so this could potentially be an extremely cheap drug. That's one potential benefit of it. It has huge um, clinical, uh, huge safety profile from extensive use uh, in other indications. So it's a widely available generic treatment being evaluated in 56 randomized clinical trials to treat COVID-19 worldwide in over 7,000 patients. The mechanism of action is likely to be anti-inflammatory based on animal models, but there are new estimates of IC50 emerging from human Cali-3 cells, as opposed to the original IC50 estimates that were from monkey cells. There's no individual cl clinical trial large enough to clearly establish efficacy, but the combined data from all the available clinical trials may be large enough to assess clinical efficacy reliably. So the research question we were trying to answer in this, in this presentation was, 
is there enough clinical evidence to support the worldwide approval of ivermectin to treat COVID-19? And we looked at various different endpoints to assess efficacy, either viral clearance, time to clinical recovery, duration of hospitalization, or survival. So we conducted a systematic review of randomized trials of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. And this is a little different to the uh, reviews that have been done previously. We did what other people have done. We looked at PubMed, Embase. The database is used to look at published information. The thing about ivermectin and a lot of repurposed drugs is the data is only available for some of these in preprint databases. So we looked at databases like MedX, uh, MedRxiv, Research Square. We also looked for all the clinical trials on clinical trials registry websites, and we contacted every clinical trial running of ivermectin worldwide. And this is something other people haven't done. We 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 got the details. We asked them to join regular fortnightly meetings so that we could hear the results firsthand from the people running the clinical trials as they emerged. And throughout December and then uh, now in January, we've been having these fascinating Zoom meetings with people literally from all over the world, countries like Japan, Lebanon, Bangladesh, India, all over South America, Israel, Turkey, just a whole range of different countries, all uh, working in alliance and sharing the results from their individual trials. So, so far in this meta-analysis of 18 randomized trials, so far we're seeing uh, associations with viral clearance, duration of hospitalization, rates of clinical recovery, and a 75% improvement in survival rates. And we're seeing these effects uh, for viral clearance to be higher for higher doses and for longer durations of treatment. Now, before we get too carried away, we just need to remember that this, this database at the moment may not be large enough or robust enough to allow immediate regulatory approval. Uh, we, we share these results with the National Institutes of Health in the United States, and their, their impression was that this is all data based on preprints, on uh, personal communication with investigators, and really they need to see more documentation they need to see the actual databases the protocols all the patient data at an individual level to be absolutely sure that drugs are not approved based on information that goes into preprints they're approved based on submitted quality data so the next steps uh, from the team's point of view is this very detailed assessment of data quality from each trial we're using the cochrane criteria evaluation of bias we're integrating results from emerging trials, and there are many other studies being, uh, being uh, generating results, and they will be reporting in the near future. So the way that the WHO indication works is you have a separate indication for mild infection to lower the risk of hospitalization and to, to cause faster viral clearance, and then you have an alternative moderate severe infection in, uh, indication where the endpoint is faster recovery and improved survival. Now, as I said, we've seen data so far from just over 2,000 patients. We have a lot more data coming in the next month, and we just need to be a little bit careful here and remember what has happened with previous uh, trials where remdesivir looked great until we saw the results of solidarity. We have more trials coming, and we need to consider 
how much we need to wait for these results before we make uh, very uh, big decisions. So that was six months ago. And this is August. And so six months ago would have been, let's see, February. So that was in February 2021. However, since then, his publication, this one that he reviewed, this meta-analysis has been published in a peer-reviewed journal. And here is what one doctor has to say reviewing the results of the peer-reviewed publication. I want to specifically state that I'm not recommending the use of ivermectin for either the treatment or prophylaxis of COVID-19 at this time, but I am simply restating data that has been shared by researchers. I will continue to say that no matter how well ivermectin may work in both the treatment or prevention of COVID-19, I will always recommend getting the COVID-19 vaccine and believe the safety and efficacy data is excellent to support the vaccines that are currently available. There are two items that I want to mention. The first is a meta-analysis of 24 randomized controlled trials involving over 3,400 participants that was recently published in the American Journal of Therapeutics online on June 17th. This meta-analysis is based on 16 trials with mild to moderate COVID-19 patients, six trials with severe COVID-19 patients, and three trials with over 700 participants that were evaluated in the prophylaxis trial. The reason I like this meta-analysis is that they specifically addressed a commentary from the end of April in the British Medical Journal that was titled, quote, Misleading Clinical Evidence in Systemic Reviews on Ivermectin for COVID-19, in which the authors complain that the rapidity in which some articles are being published online has precluded the usual peer scrutiny, evaluations, and usual stringent requirements for effective scientific study. I completely agree. Some of the studies that have been published online are woefully underpowered, without enough participants, botched randomization and endpoints that are changed mid-study. Prior to the era of COVID-19, these studies would not have even seen the light of day. But I don't agree that every study, even with its flaws, should be discounted. Despite some limitations, you can still see trends in the data, especially if you find studies that are done well enough specifically trials that use placebos and are randomized. So this particular meta-analysis was very upfront about the biases that were seen in particular studies and the heterogeneity in the studies as well. The studies used different doses of ivermectin from a one-time dose of 12 milligrams to dosing based on weight to a daily dose of five days. They used studies that gave ivermectin to people with severe cases of COVID-19 as well as studies that gave ivermectin to prevent COVID-19. Overall, I'm going to focus on the strongest result from their evaluation of these studies. And this focuses on the 15 trials with over 2,400 participants that used ivermectin to reduce the risk of death. Because in my opinion, this is certainly a straightforward endpoint and one that is of the utmost importance. And based on moderate certainty evidence, this was their nod to the fact that these studies had some issues with bias. They found that ivermectin reduced the risk of death by an average of 62% compared with no ivermectin treatment. The numbers were small. 2.3% died while using ivermectin, 
while 7.8% died who did not use ivermectin. But the trend is there. Other studies they looked at had low certainty evidence, but still found that were trends that ivermectin prophylaxis reduced COVID-19 infection and tended to improve patient symptoms with COVID-19. Okay, so that was Dr. Christy Reisinger, and she is a medical doctor. You can go to her YouTube channel where she has a lot of helpful information about ivermectin as well as other health information. So I would say ask your doctor about this medication, even though some people are labeling this as uh, the results as anecdotal. Now, some scientists, especially the scientists over at the frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, are saying something different, and they're seeing something different. So their data is showing that ivermectin can treat COVID-19. They have 60 trials 574 scientists have done these trials in over 21,814 patients, 30 randomized control trials. And what they have seen is that there were 85% improvement. There were an 85% improvement in 13 prophylaxis trials and 74% improvement in 26 early treatment trials for COVID, 43% improvement in 21 late treatment trials, and 60% improvement in 30 randomized control trials. So that is some data that is hard to just ignore, especially if you're a scientist. Dr. Pierre Corey, he is a critical care physician who graduated from St. George University with uh, his medical degree, and he completed his residency and fellowship training in critical care and pulmonary medicine. He is the president of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. That's the FLCCC Alliance, which started uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, let me be clear, here in the United States, the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration and the World Health Organization do not recommend ivermectin as a prescribed treatment for COVID-19. However, the National Institute of Health, the NIH, does not recommend nor condemn the use of ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19. And there have been a lot of controversy over this drug in the United States. And the controversy stems from the fact that we can't come to the agreement about the quality of the data that is supporting this medication as treatment for COVID-19. Some experts are saying there's not enough evidence that it works. The data is anecdotal. In other words, the results that are being seen are just by chance. It's just coincidental. Just so happened it did work for some people. But if it were recommended, it wouldn't work for most people. 
And some scientists are saying the results that are being seen, the benefits are real. Here is Dr. Corey. Well, the, the first thing is, although this government, so if we talk about the U.S., so I just talk about the U.S., I guess. So the U.S. had an obsessive and singular focus on vaccines. And, and if the vaccines could end the pandemic, great job. That would be uh, if, if, they, if, if they were proven uh, short term, long term safety and proven short and long term efficacy, that would be the way to do it. And everybody could take one or want to take one. Uh, that would be great. We know from our history of flu vaccinations that even with the best of messaging, you can't even get people to take flu uh, as much as they need to. So so that obsessive focus is devoid of an early treatment option. Right, because here's a couple of things. We know that not everybody uh, is going to get vaccinated, and 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 I just have to call out one thing that really angers me is the demonization of these people that you're seeing in the media. And I feel, I mean, these are my patients. You know, it's like, you know, you know, I'm a lung doctor, right? So I, I've been taking care of smokers for decades. I don't demonize them. Right. Even though they might do something that dangers their health. All of us have patients that don't make the best of decisions. Now, the decision to get vaccinated, I don't want to get too much into vaccines. Again, it's for every patient. It's a little bit different. Right. And so um, I, I don't like that they're demonized because here's the other reason why I don't like demonizing them is. Is. We need an early treatment option that we have no policy for early treatment. And just like you mentioned in the beginning, we can't even get our government to recommend vitamin D. They can't even recommend vitamin D to the population, a population that they've studied for decades. The FDA has data knowing that large proportions, oftentimes in minority communities in the North, nursing home residents are all vitamin D deficient. And they can't even come up with some sort of recommendation for vitamin D. I mean, like like I said, I keep using the word absurd. so there's no early treatment option. First thing is I would employ an early treatment option. And keep in mind, I've read this only one of the things that works, right? We know of a number of, of other agents. We're impressed with the, uh, the pathophysiology and mechanisms of fluvoxamine and the efficacy of fluvoxamine, right? Um, and then there's a povidone iodine. You know, that's on our protocol. Like, what's wrong with a little bit of uh, oral pharyngeal, nasal pharyngeal decontamination with an antivirus, you know, an antivirus thing, right? It reduces the viral burden. It, it re- probably reduces pro- propagation. And in the handful of trials that you're seeing now, they're, they're pretty effective, right? So, um, I mean, there are some simple things you could do to the population. So, number one, I would just, I would just use, like, sound reasoning, which is, like, be pragmatic. Be commonsensical, safe, widely available, cheap, likely highly effective therapies. Please tell the population, protect yourself with these interventions, right? Once you have that early treatment piece, I don't even know what uh, the, the other stuff that you would have to do. I'd like, I would like to reassess after a massive early, you know, that void that we have. Remember, my testimony in Senate was literally about that void. Like, what are we doing for these patients before they get to the hospital? And so once we put that building block in, you know, alongside the vaccines, you know, I think you'll have the triple threat, right? Right now, what do we have? And we have big-time herd immunity, which you know from the evidence, right? If you've had COVID before, there seems to be long-lasting, very durable immunity. So you have you have the herd that's already gotten COVID. Then you have the people who are vaccinated. And then put in uh, ivermectin, both as a preventive and early treatment. 
and this isn't part of the policy, but going back to the demonization of the unvaccinated is that I think a really cool way that hopefully people will listen to us more is that we are getting reports of a fair amount of breakthrough infections, right? So there's no hard numbers. The U.S., for some reason, you can't get good numbers. But when you're looking at some of the other countries that are sharing their numbers, like you're seeing a fair amount of breakthrough infections. Here's my message. Fully vaccinated people will need treatment. Stop blocking early treatment, right? Because if you want to demonize the unvaccinated, like, oh, you got sick, we're going to blame you, tough on you. I don't think they're going to have that same attitude when the vaccinated people get sick. So if I, if I can prey upon them to listen to us, to offer some treatment for those worthy, you get what I'm saying, being cynical, those worthy, those who decided to get vaccinated, um, I, hopefully that would that would fall upon um, some open ears, right? Some of the anti-IVMers who got vaccinated, well, God forbid they get sick. Um, I'm here to help. You know, I've had a couple of people recently who were mild. Like one was the wife of someone I met. He was sick. He agreed to treatment. And the wife kind of didn't want anything. She didn't want to be treated. She was kind of mild. And I said, you know, I don't want to force anything on you, but the best available data we have shows that if you get treated early, you don't get long COVID and your risk of long COVID probably are near nil. And so I said, although you might not feel sick enough where you want treatment, um, as you and I both know, long COVID is just devastating, right? You want to avoid that at all costs. And so another reason to get early treatment out there, well-known physician who was a long hauler himself um, and learned about ivermectin after my testimony. And He's treating himself as long as many of his patients in his practice, and, and he reports excellent efficacy. With one caveat, the these long haulers, many of them have to stay on ivermectin. Even my colleague, I mean, he literally, he's been at it eight months now. He has to take it two to three times a week. As soon as he stops, the symptoms come back. And so, I mean, it's a good message and a bad message, meaning that we can help you, but it requires maintenance therapy. So I would like to say, so far as the herd immunity, we really, we really don't know what that level is, what level of vaccinated people would make herd immunity here in the United States, as far as I know. The cases are still going up. That's one reason why we know we don't have herd immunity. The other reason is, we still have these breakthrough cases. So far as early treatment for COVID-19, <laughs> now I know about medication adherence. In other words, you're adhering to your blood pressure medication or any medication if you take it at, as prescribed by your doctor at the time that the doctor has prescribed it routinely. So you're taking the right dose, you're taking it at the right time, you're taking it at the right frequency as often as the doctor said you should take it. And you're doing this consistently. Now, um, as long as people have symptoms, they probably will be adherent to medication for whatever disease they may have. But if patients are not symptomatic, early treatment is something that it's going to be hard to 
get them to adhere to. For instance, if you have a COVID patient who does not have any symptoms and you have a doctor to prescribe ivermectin or any other medication for that patient, it is likely that that patient will not be fully adherent because they don't feel sick. Just like patients do when they have high blood pressure and they don't feel sick and so they, they're they not adherent to the blood pressure medication. So early treatment without symptoms probably won't work sufficient enough by itself because meds don't work unless you take them. People do not want to take medication. And others, young people, they do not like taking pills. So trying to prescribe a pill so that they won't get COVID, uh, they may not take the medication. Now, breakthrough cases of these fully vaccinated people, once they get COVID and they have symptoms, they will likely, and I'm just generalizing, they will likely take the medication, ivermectin or anything else that we may have come up with. But if they're asymptomatic, again, it's going to be hard to have people adhere to the medication. So all of these reasons that I'm, I'm talking about are reasons why we cannot just rely on ivermectin to get us out this pandemic, as well as we can't rely on just the vaccine to get us out this pandemic. And he, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying have it by itself, but he is saying if we had ivermectin as a two, along with the vaccines, along with the public health measures, we could possibly get out of this pandemic sooner rather than later. So that's all I have for you today. Stay tuned to Hypertension Resistant to Treatment, where I'll tell you more about what everybody ought to know about hypertension and trending health topics. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.